Welcome back to Secondary Rules. This episode is the Mazibuko and City of Johannesburg edition. I'm Joshua New. And I'm Ryan Goss. We are brought to you, as always, by the ANU Law School. This is the eighth episode of our second season. Each episode this season, we are telling the story of a great landmark court decision from around the world to pull it apart, talk it through, and think about its broader significance. Thanks to everyone who has been in touch about our recent episodes. We are always glad to get your feedback. Now, Ryan has proven himself again to be the human rights hippie <laughs> with another human rights case, which gives me another opportunity to correct his many errors. I will be grateful. I am pleased, though, that we are continuing our globe-trotting tour of the world's jurisdictions. See, I do some things for you. <laughs> we have covered four continents so far, Australia, Asia, Europe, and North America. Today, we will be traveling to a fifth continent. That's right. We'll be looking at a case from uh, South Africa uh, and the South African Constitutional Court, in particular, its 2009 decision in Masibuko. And um, this, uh, this case and the South African Constitution, for the reasons we'll talk about, raise some questions that I think tie into discussions we've had before, Joshua, about the role of courts in a democratic society and particularly in a society where the constitution was drafted with such fresh memory of such an undemocratic oppressive society in the form of the apartheid regime. So the South African constitution is interesting for all sorts of reasons and the South African constitutional court's jurisprudence is interesting for all sorts of reasons. But one of them is that the constitution was, was really designed to transform uh, South Africa and to transform South Africa's political, social institutions, its its uh, form of government, everything, um, which has a really in interesting consequences for its jurisprudence. And I think one of the reasons that it may be fun for you, Joshua, and maybe for the listeners is that the constitution enumerates a range of human rights, and we'll give some examples of those soon, but um, included amongst them are what we call socioeconomic rights. And it gives the under the constitution gives the court a task, a job, a function in implementing those rights. So I'm keen to see whether some of your usual objections to, to human rights law and to, to courts uh, doing things you don't like seems to be the, the thing you object to <laughs> will apply here where the, where the constitution in black and white uh, protects yeah. these rights. But before, before we get in uh, into the facts of this case, perhaps could you tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the South African constitution? When did it come about? How did it come about? And uh, the struggle that led up to it. Yeah, so as, as many listeners will know, for large parts of the 20th century, uh, the South African government was an apartheid regime, a white minority regime that was discriminatory and oppressive um, towards the majority black population and to uh, minority groups in general uh, within South Africa. It was oppressive. It was uh, flagrantly undemocratic in all sorts of ways and uh, breaching of human rights, basic rights in all sorts of ways as part and parcel of that. After the fall of apartheid uh, in the 1990s, a series of fascinating uh, constitutional drafting uh, uh, processes go underway and we, we wind up, long story short, with the South African Constitution of 1996. And it was, was really designed to, there was a transitional constitution before it, it was designed to build on that, but to help build uh, the legal political foundations for a new South Africa, for a post-apartheid South Africa, among other things by protecting a huge range of human rights and basic rights and thinking creatively or trying to think creatively about all sorts of different ways in which a democracy 
a young democracy could be bolstered, strengthened, protected from uh, the, the horrors that were so fresh in everyone's mind from the apartheid regime. So unlike most constitutions that we are familiar with, which um, provide for civil and political rights, this constitution also provides for socio-economic rights. So what are socio-economic rights? Socioeconomic rights in, the, in this context um, mean things like the right to health, the right to education, the right to food, the right to water that we'll talk about today, the right to social assistance, all of which are protected in the South African constitution. And I think uh, very often um, grappling with those rights can be difficult or, or unusual for people trained in an Australian tradition or in an Anglo-Australian tradition. Uh, people are, are more comfortable or more familiar with civil and political rights. We can think a little bit about why that may be. But in the South African constitution, the civil and political rights, freedom of speech, right to life, right not to be tortured are all there as well. They're protected too. But so are a tranche of economic and social and cultural So rights. why are socioeconomic rights more difficult for us to grasp than civil and political rights? Well, I think... Uh, if they are, it may simply be a lack of familiarity. But I think among the reasons that are some people sometimes point to are that um, they involve much more in the way of positive obligations. Instead of saying to a government or a legislature, you shall not torture, um, you shall not infringe the freedom of the press. And um, we may call those negative rights. Negative like rights. Telling the government what they cannot do. Yeah. In, in the context of economic, social and cultural rights, you enter into positive obligations, a perception that the government ought to provide water, the government ought to provide food or guarantee food or guarantee water or guarantee education or right to health, those sorts of things that require service provision, spending of money, um, uh, a lot of activity on the part of government rather than merely refraining from activity. And the provision about the right to water illustrates that perfectly, right? So could you read uh, well, well, the let's section? Just, just before we get to the right to water, I should, I should say as well, Joshua, that, that we, we can give that sort of caricature of the two boxes of rights. We might wonder whether, in fact, the bright line is so clear between those two categories. You uh, mean one being negative and the other positive? That and distinction, that's that? right. And the notion that civil and political rights are negative and economic and social and cultural rights are positive. If we think about classic civil and political rights, the right to a fair trial in a criminal proceeding, for example, or the right to legal aid, um, that requires a government to fund a justice system, to build courthouses, to pay judges, to establish a legal aid system, spend money on that, send resources to that, as just one example. So, so we would want to be wary about simply casting them into two discrete buckets. And it may simply be that economic, social and cultural rights are less familiar because they're less familiar. We just don't have as much exposure to them in the Anglo-Australian sort of system. Yeah, but the right to fair trial, it's a post-war thing, right? You look at older constitutions, the American constitution, for example, doesn't have this phrasing called right to fair trial. But they might have a right to due process and that might bring with it certain consequences as well. Yeah, so would this increasing uh, imposition on positive obligations, would that, is it fair to say that's that's the new phenomenon? And, and it applies to socioeconomic rights, uh, but it might apply to... Um, sorry, so it definitely applies to socioeconomic rights, but it could apply to civil and political rights as well. It could do too. And then there would be other scholars who would tell us, well, even having those two categories is, <laughs> is simplifying it too, and that there's, a, there's more of a spectrum of a range of obligations. But certainly that's part of it. But let's get to the mm. right to water. So Section 27 of the South African Constitution says that... Everyone has the right 
to have access to sufficient food and water. And another subsection within that section says the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures within its available resources to achieve the progressive realisation of each of these rights. So what was the facts that triggered the litigation in this case? So we're thinking about everyone having the right to have access to sufficient water. And it's taking place in the context of Johannesburg, um, which is at the time the, the second fastest growing city in South Africa. Um, there are millions of people living there. Half of the households in the city are, are very, very poor. Um, and um, a significant proportion of the households are located in informal settlements. And in those informal settlements, uh, a, a big chunk of the population has no access to basic sanitary services. And even to the extreme of a tenth of all households have no access to a tap providing clean water within 200 metres of their home, let alone in the home. So this is um, uh, in a, a city with communities within it that are in informal settlements that are impoverished, that have suffered uh, or that have been subject to decades of oppressive uh, uh, discrimination, treatment by the state over many decades. Uh, and the challenge in this case relates to the provision of water to those to those. But the government wanted to solve precisely that issue, right? They want to clean up the place, lay out new pipes, stop water leakages uh, through uh, the piping system. So they came up with a plan to actually supply water efficiently to this particular neighbourhood. So the government said, that's right, which, which was a combination of uh, ensuring that um, each, each countholder, each householder would receive um, six kilolitres of free water a month and that after that point, you would have a prepaid water meter that would kick in and you would pay for additional water on top of that. And this was an attempt to resolve the, um, the, uh, the difficulties, the deficiencies in the water system in, in this part of Johannesburg. And to be really clear, this is the result of decades of, of oppression and, and bad, oppressive, authoritarian government policy. So the prepaid system, many Australians would not be familiar with that, right? Could I explain how would this prepaid system work? Well, the notion there would be um, if in order, once you had used up your allocation of, of, free water, water. of free water, the water would stop essentially stop flowing. You would stop having access to water um, unless you had, um, through the relevant mechanisms, paid uh, an amount um, to gain access to additional water and then that would be used up. And they, they implemented a prepaid system presumably because under the previous postpaid system, which is use first, pay later, they had trouble collecting money, that trouble getting people to pay their water bills. Well, um, there had been a, a history of... Um, of a civil disobedience of a sort, of not paying under the under the apartheid regime, not paying um, uh, water bills to the local government authorities as a form of civil disobedience or protest at the apartheid regime and at the poor quality of those services. So there was that history in the background too that they'd um, that was the local government when it was pleading before the court sought said that it was seeking to overcome. Yeah. So part of this. Uh state of affairs has to do with that transition from 
the apartheid regime to the post-apartheid democratic government, right? Under the post uh, under the apartheid regime, not paying water bill was an act of civil disobedience, right? It was to make a statement that um, I oppose what this government stands for. I'm not going to pay. But now that the apartheid regime had collapsed and replaced with a new democratic government, the new democratic government needed to create a cultural shift from non-payment of water bills to making people pay for their water usage. And they can't get it done through a postpaid system, hence the prepaid mode was part of the effort to get that cultural shift and also to recoup the cost of supplying water. That was certainly the local government's argument. And and to add on to what you've said, I think they would say that their goal was to provide more water to more uh, people in a reliable way. Um, but certainly they, they made a number of arguments among which was this, this concern about payment. Yeah. So the scheme had two prongs or two components. One, it's the free supply of a prescribed amount of water. And second, beyond that, it would be provided under a prepaid system and both aspects of this scheme were challenged before the constitutional court. That's right. And, and just to give that additional context, this, um, the, the, the community in which this was trialled within Johannesburg, um, as, as various authors have written about after the judgment, um, you know, many of the residents in this area were among the poorest of the poor in South Africa. Many were suffering from HIV and AIDS and other illnesses. Um, many were simply unable to pay the, the top-up amount to get the prepaid water um, flowing. You had particular, um, the, the litigant said, particular, and, and it's been explained, particular impact on women and disadvantaged women in the area in particular. So there are all sorts of ways in which the um, pre-existing intersectional complexity of um, of South Africa in the post-apartheid era was was the context within which this was all taking place. So that relates to the amount of free water that the yeah. government need to supply, right? So this, this doesn't deal with the prepaid well, it part also, yet. It does go to the ability of people within that community to, to have sufficient money at hand to be paying for the water. Yeah, but if they can't prepay, they can't postpay it at all. So, right? So if they have no money to prepay, they will not have money to postpay, they will not have money to pay at all. So that is really an argument about free water. How sure, sure. much free water is the government obligated to supply? Because if you are, because if you are going to pay, it, the, there's, there may be some liquidity issue. Cash liquidity. For want of a better Cash term. liquidity. Yeah. Right? On prepay versus postpay. But... If the, the government has a duty to supply free water, the problem of having to pay goes away. And so what we get then is, if we come back to the provision, we have everyone has the right to have access to sufficient water. And the litigants before the Constitutional Court said, um, we ask that you find that we have access to 50 litres of water per person per day. Um, and indeed, the Johannesburg High Court had earlier found that it, would, it found that sufficient water would be 50 litres per person per day. The Supreme Court of Appeal found that it was 42 litres per person per day. And this, the Constitutional Court was asked by the litigants to say sufficient water under Section 27 of the Constitution means 50 litres per person per so day. So the litigants were really going before the courts, and I say the courts here because it was first heard at the Johannesburg High Court, it was later heard at the Supreme Court of Appeal, and then now before the Constitutional Court. They were asking judges to decide how much water 
is sufficient water, right? And we have this numbers uh, dispute. 51 court says 50 litres, uh, says one court, 42 litres, says another court. It seems like to quote King Lear, this way, madness lies, <laughs> right? Asking court to decide how much water is required. But, what would the court know? But why does this way madness lie? Because the court has no expertise. It goes to judicial competence. So the court can decide on infringement of rights, sure. But to set an amount of water that individual needs, that seems a matter for statisticians, perhaps, scientists, bureaucrats, politicians, uh, uh, even in their interaction with constituents, if they want to win votes, they will have to talk to constituents and engage with constituents and see what compromises could be achieved. But judges don't do that. Judges don't go and kiss babies during campaign periods and engage with the local community, right? They're, what would they know about well, how much water is needed? Would I think when you say judges don't do this, I think that, that perhaps... Begs and they're not allowed to do that, right? It would be well, most this is improper for them to go around asking, get, get, getting opinion polls, how much water do you need well, per day? No, but that's, it might be improper for them to go around kissing babies. But you say judges don't do this in terms of calculating things. It would be improper for many people to go around kissing babies. All right. You say it's improper for them to calculate amounts of water. The, the, that begs the question, I think. It may be unfamiliar to us. It may be improper in a society with a different constitution, we might think. But this is a constitution in which the supreme law of the land says everyone has the right to have access to sufficient water. Now, if you're a judge in that context, some might think that there is an element of shirking, of not doing your job if you're unwilling to explain and interpret what sufficient water is. There's a few argument on the other side, as we'll see, but I think saying judges don't do this sort of thing presupposes a certain view of judges, which is which is not this necessarily the constitutional system that this constitution sought to create. When I say they don't do this sort of thing, I, what I mean is that they don't go politicking. Yeah, right? sure, and sure, sure. Pol and water policy must surely come as a result of many compromises. If we have unlimited resources, ideally we give everyone unlimited water. Yeah. Use as much water as you want, why limit it at all? Now, but that's not possible, economically not viable. I mean, there's uh, the water system. To lay out new pipes require money. The government needs to find a way to balance the books, to balance its budget. So we can't give unlimited water to everyone. How much is enough? Now, that is a political compromise, and a political compromise requires politicking. Politicking with other parties, politicking sure, sure. at election campaigns with their constituents. But, but in any system of, of any democratic system, even one without this sort of uh, economic, social, cultural rights in the constitution, judges make decisions that have impact on government resources. Now, it's different to this. It's less familiar to us than this, but... Um, whether those are decisions in administrative law, in decisions in torts, decisions in constitutional law, judges hear evidence, they hear arguments before them, lawyers or the lower courts assemble a record which they then take in on board. Um, judges become experts in all sorts of peculiar areas of business and government and life and the economy in order to reach decisions in 
you know, competition, more administrative law, torts, whatever it may be, and they make decisions that lead to governments needing to spend money on one thing or another, um, uh, whether that's as simple as putting up signs on the edge of cliffs in national parks, don't walk close to this cliff, you might fall off, whether that's establishing a system of legal aid um, or translators in criminal trials, whatever it may be. Um, so uh, so I, I think perhaps what you're saying is this is a difference in, in degree, it's a difference in terms of a difference in degree rather than difference in kind? Is that what your objection is? Not really. So in a torts case uh, where a judicial decision may result in the government having to put up more signboards, the legislature can take a political decision to override that decision, right? As uh, our parliament has done in passing a civil wrongs act to say, well, we don't really want to do that. Our budget doesn't allow that. And so we can override a judicial decision that impact on the allocation of resources. In this case, if the constitutional court in South Africa did not overrule what the Johannesburg High Court did and what the Supreme Court of Appeal did, they would essentially be writing part of the budget for the government. And thankfully, that's not what the court did, right? Yeah, and so in uh, Justice Kate O'Regan's judgment, and she wrote for Justice O'Regan wrote for the rest of the court, um, she grapples with these sorts of questions that we we might categorise as questions, as you said, of judicial competence and judicial legitimacy. That is to say, um, is a, a judge are the courts well set up just as an institution to gather this sort of evidence, consider this sort of information? Um, uh, make multifaceted polycentric decisions, are they competent in the sense of are they well equipped, do they have the skills and, and um, abilities to do that as institutions? And then judicial legitimacy, are these decisions that should be being made by a non-political branch rather than by politicians who can be held accounted elections, who can kiss babies and all the sorts of things you were talking about before? And I think that comes through in Justice O'Regan's um, judgment that she was grappling with that and uh, and the, the conclusion she reached I think is one that you're happy with Joshua. It's a conclusion we should say that's extremely controversial. It's one of the most criticised decisions we, we probably have been doing in all this season. Um, but you were happy with the way in which she, she decided I think. I'm not one to shirk from controversial <laughs> decisions now, consider the options before the Constitutional Court. There's, they're faced with two prior decisions. Johannesburg so High Court says 50 litres, Supreme Court of Appeal says 42 litres. Really, whatever number they could come up with, there's a kind, there's a degree of arbitrariness to it. For, is, it is 42 enough or maybe 43? Maybe 42.5 uh, would be the right amount. So... But if the political branches were to make arbitrary decisions, that's fine because their legitimacy doesn't come from the decision itself. The, 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 the legitimacy comes from its democratic pedigree. They have democratic accountability. Therefore, whatever decision they make need, need not be justified from the decision. The, ju the justification comes from the procedure. Whereas the court does not have that democratic legitimacy. The justification for the decision must come from the decision. And in this case, they would have to pluck a number out of thin air in an arbitrary way and they have no way to justify that number. Uh, 
Well, I don't think it'd be in thin air. I mean, I think there's there's evidence before them. There's a record before them. There's a lower court's decision before them. But your point your point stands. I think saying it's in thin air is unnecessarily <laughs> hyperbolic. <laughs> but, but when you when you mark exam papers between the sixty two and the sixty three, <laughs> if someone were to come to you, do you really have a strong reason why is this a sixty two and not a sixty three? I plead the fifth. <laughs> um, but we, we see, Joshua, these are things that <laughs> should not be discussed. Um, not on air. Please. Not on air. Um, the, uh, the, the, the challenge there for Justice O'Regan, she, she identifies the sorts of concerns that, that you are concerned with, Joshua. She says um, setting this sort of um, precise amount of water is a matter in the first instance for the legislature and the executive and that those institutions are best placed to investigate social conditions in light of available budgets, determine what targets are achievable. Um, so there's a competence point there. She also says, Justice O'Regan, that it's desirable as a matter of democratic accountability that they should do that um, for their programs and promises are subject to democratic popular choice. She also makes the point that uh, is, is familiar to from all sorts of areas of constitutional law that um, setting in stone a, an amount of water in one year um, had, would bring with it dangers because time and context would, would mean that that amount might be grossly insufficient or, uh, or too much as time and circumstances changed, as climate change, cli climate change occurred or as other social um, changes occurred in the, in the society. So there was a reluctance to set in stone in the form of a constitutional court judgment a particular amount of litres of water. And with that, the court rejected the approach taken by the lower courts, right, the Johannesburg High Court and the uh, Supreme Court of Appeal, uh, dealt with the provision via one, what, what one might call the minimum core approach, that why we could stipulate a minimum threshold that the government can't fall below and then they have, they have a disagreement even between the lower courts on what that minimum core is, what the minimum threshold is and the constitutional court said no no we are we are not in that business of setting the a minimum amount and replace it with this progressive realization approach so long as the government is making a genuine effort as it was in this case to improve water supply the government has met its obligations under the relevant provisions of the constitution so have i got that yeah yeah so the, the key was not has the government provided X litres of water to each person or each household? The key was, is the state performing its obligations in a manner which is reasonable? So there's a reasonableness test that's being applied here. And the litigants would have had to, they didn't, but would have had to persuade the constitutional court that the city's water policy was unreasonable. But it ties in, if we go back and think uh, about the text, it ties into this language in the constitution that the state must take reasonable legislative and other measures within its available resources to achieve the progressive realization of each of these rights. And I think that notion of progressive realization and within available resources are, are notions that again are ones that when we come to economic, social and cultural rights take many lawyers outside the realm of what they are most familiar with in the context of civil and political rights. In the context of civil and political rights, has the state breached the right? Yes or no. If it has, it's, it's evident, it's clear, they've tortured someone, they've taken someone's life unlawfully, whatever it may be. In this case, well, it depends on the resources of the state, it depends on the progressive realisation of those rights. It doesn't require the instant realisation, we are told, of, um, of access to water for everyone right away. So what good is it to have these rights in the constitution? Maybe we should not have 
such rights written in the constitution, right? Uh, th- those are matters for the usual political process. Why write this kind of rights into the constitution? Well, the, and the litigants in this uh, in this case said that unless um, unless there, the court was willing to set down a minimum core, you know, number of litres for each household, that um, these positive obligations in the social and economic rights in the constitution would be futile. It would be futile having them there. It is pointless and and perhaps even worse than futile. It would be counterproductive because it would undermine, they said, the um, the, the force of the commitment to human rights in this transformative constitution. But the, the constitutional court in the form of Justice O'Regan's judgment took a, took a different view and it, it was one that sort of relies on an expansive understanding of what democracy is and in particular how you protect democracy in a society that has seen threats to it recently. In short, it sees the litigation of this sort as being part of and fostering democracy itself. The very ability of litigants to bring the government to the court, to challenge them to account for what they are doing, to explain and justify their policy, explain what they are doing to work towards the progressive realisation of this right within their resources is a a process that itself fosters democracy and sits alongside what we might think about as the the political branches that uh, that, that sustain democracy or that are the product of democracy. Yeah, but it fosters democracy in a particular way, right? By taking it out of the usual channels of democratic political contestation and forcing the matter into a judicial setting. Well, I don't know that that's right. I mean, I think the in the view of Justice O'Regan, at least, her her vision would be that the usual political channels go on, that the the political debates, the politicking, the baby kissing, the policy proposing, all goes on. That r- continues to roll forward, and ultimately, it's for the political branches to decide how much water and how to provide it to people. But sitting alongside that is a check, is a is a means between elections for citizens to come to the courts and say, well, what are you, what are you doing to achieve this goal? What are you doing to achieve sufficient food or uh, right to access to education or healthcare and to force governments to account for what they are doing in between the elections. Not that the court will dictate the outcome, indeed she was reluctant to dictate the outcome here, but that it, the courts act as part of the democratic accountability process in a way that, you know, that we see elements of in Australia or systems like Australia, but that really is, is a, a more bolstered, uh, enhanced version of that accountability. Um, You're not I'm, still, yeah, I'm still sceptical, right? Imagine the US Constitution having socio-economic rights. Well, why does everything come back to the United States? It's, the, the, the United States is the most outlier constitutional system. But go on, go on with your thought experiment. Right, now, could you, could you imagine... I mean, who can think of a better democracy that? than the United States? Okay, keep going. I mean, why do you dislike the United States? <laughs> I love the United States. Keep going with your hypothetical. The United States often every few years is faced with the prospect of a government shutdown because they can't even even Congress can't sort out its budget priorities. Could you imagine throwing the judiciary into the ring? It will make it worse. Right now, in face of a government shutdown, Congress can't deal with it, and then judges have something to say too. Before we know it. The whole thing would be dysfunctional if it's not already dysfunctional. Well, I think, I think, I think uh, the United States, States needs no help from anyone in being a dysfunctional democracy. But, <laughs> but I think um, it is – let's take it away from the United States. It's possible to imagine a world in which 
you're describing in which litigation over economic, social and cultural rights involved throwing a series of um, spanners in the works, um, uh, uh, obstructing government action, making it more difficult for governments to govern. I think the um, Mazabuko, Oregon view would be um, they all get to keep governing but in the course of their governing they should expect that part of this transformative constitution is that they will have to might have to explain what they are doing what their governing is and account for it not just every few years in election but also in the courts if someone is if a group of citizens or as is often the case in South Africa a group a, uh, a strategic litigation group challenges the government action that this is an additional way to hold governments to account and i think the context here is also important that after 1994, in the post-apartheid era, uh, South Africa has uh, been not at, not at all local levels, not at all provincial levels, but the national level has been governed by the uh, the ANC, um, and there has been consistent ANC rule at the national level since that time. And so, in any system where one political party dominates over an extended period of time, having additional accountability measures in addition to and between elections is a way not of stopping policy, not of requiring policy, not of even requiring the spending of money, but requiring governments to account for what they're doing, to explain for what they're doing, um, to show that what they're doing is reasonable. Yeah. They're still not solved. (laughs) But it seems that the constitutional court here has split the baby, right? So they're willing to uh, uh, say that they have a role in... Yeah. Budget uh, in budgeting for water. They have a role in tracking the government's priorities in terms of its resource allocation, but they are not willing to go as far as the Johannesburg High Court and the Court of Appeal did in setting an amount. So they have split the baby in the sense that they have given each side a bit of what they wanted. The litigants want a judicial involvement. They say, well, we'll have some judicial involvement, but we'll not go as far as to set an amount. For the government, they said, well, we will not give you a number, but we will review it for reasonableness. So in a way, it sort of keeps both sides uh, happy partially. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I think attributing it to to the court splitting the baby, I think, overlooks the text of the Constitution, that we're dealing with a Constitution which explicitly protects the right to have access to sufficient water. And so once that's on the books, I think the role of the court, uh, maybe it's inevitable in your view that they would have to split the baby, but it is it is not as a, a dilemma of their creation. It's a dilemma of the Constitution's creation. And faced with that... They have, they, make the be- they have made the best out of a very difficult situation for the court. So Justice O'Regan would hope. I mean, I think it's a, it is perhaps a more deferential judgment to the political branches than, than you cast it as in those terms. And it's certainly um, a judgment that's been criticised. I mean, this is just such a um, heavily criticised judgment of the, of the constitutional court um, um, as has been said in one of the authors, there have not been many judgments of the Constitutional Court which have attracted such near-universal condemnation. Um, it, it, for, among other things, ignoring some of the context we spoke about before of the particular intersectional disadvantages of, of women, of people um, with HIV and AIDS, um, ignoring the context or not taking sufficient attention to the context that Um, 95% of the water resources at the time were controlled by a tiny percentage of the population, less than 1% of the population, Um, and that um, 
these existing inequalities that had were persisting from from the apartheid era were not really grappled with by the court. So, so there's been a serious, you know, condemnation and backlash to the decision, uh, which perhaps suggests that the baby has been split in the way that you're describing. Um, but as as one author put it, to you know, for the for the residents who are denied sufficient access to water, um, their right to water rings pretty hollow. You know, having this water, this right protected in the constitution, and running out of water, not having enough water not having reliable access to water um, is, uh, is, is not much consolation. In this episode, we moved from kissing babies to splitting babies. <laughs> There's a lot of... Um... A lot of water under the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's wrap up there for today. Next week, uh, our look at 10 great cases will continue with a return to Australia and Marble and Queensland. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us so that you get the latest episode as soon as they are out. Today's program was produced not less than 100 miles from Sydney by the ANU Law Marketing and Communications team. Our thanks to Tom Fearon and the ANU Law School. If you'd like to know more, don't forget to check out today's show notes. Our theme music is by Soul Shifters. That's it for now. We are Joshua Neal and Ryan Goss. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Joshua. See you next week.